We had a wonderful day this morning. It is, uh, it's amazing to look at who God is and what he has done for us. And uh, tonight we're going to continue in our study of the kingdom of heaven. And remember that the kingdom of heaven is only, that phrase is only found in the book of Matthew. So what we're learning is the Jewish nature of the book of Matthew. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us as we study. Lord, thank you for the way that you uh, have revealed yourself in your word. And Lord, now I pray that that this study time will be helpful and that you'll be glorified by it. Thank you for Dalton putting this information together and it's such a help for us. Father, I pray that uh, that our, our eyes are open to some important things tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, look at page of your handout, just for a little bit of review. Top of page two, number five. It says, to understand that Matthew is yet Old Testament in its content and interpretation, what one must understand what the New Testament is and when it started. So this is one of the most important interpretive tools in your Bible, the difference between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I think everyone would agree with that, but most people don't understand that the New Testament didn't start until the death of Jesus Christ. That's a really important distinction that we need to understand. Don't you think it's kind of weird that people don't teach that? I do, because the Bible says it so clearly, and yet it is it is rarely taught. Let's look at that Pettingle quote at the bottom. And I said this in my prayer, but all this information Dalton Robertson put together for us. So look at that William L. Pettingle quote at the bottom of your page. Matthew is preeminently the gospel of the kingdom. We shall expect to see Jesus throughout this gospel as the king of Israel, or as the king of Israel promised by the prophets. The book is Jewish throughout and is incomprehensible unless this point is carefully noted. To understand the book, we must remember all the time that Jesus is here presented not primarily as Savior, but as King. This, you might want to underline this sentence right here. You will search in vain in Matthew for a statement of the gospel of the grace of God. You know that kind of statement makes people nervous. But it's just true. It's not there because that's not the purpose of the gospel of Matthew. Um, next sentence, John will tell you all about that, but Matthew's work is to tell about the gospel of the kingdom of heaven. Never elsewhere than in Matthew is the phrase, the kingdom of heaven found anywhere in the Bible. It occurs 32 times in Matthew. The church is mentioned, but only by anticipation as a future. I shall build my church, Jesus said. Matthew chapter 18 if you have a problem with your brother, go to him and him alone. If that doesn't work, take two or three people with you. If that doesn't work, bring him before the church. Well, that is the church in anticipation because, of course, the New Testament church couldn't have started because it wasn't the New Testament. But that is giving us information about what the church would be. All right? So, the church is mentioned, but only by anticipation as a future thing. It is primarily found here, however, for Matthew is the dispensational gospel setting forth the distinction between the Jews 
the Gentiles and the church of God. All right, and I believe that's where we ended last week. Is that right? I put a mark in my other notes, but I don't have those in here. I believe that's where we ended. So let's look at letter D. Therefore, to attempt to press the passages of Matthew into a New Testament context and understanding is to do great damage to the text and cause an unsolvable confusion. Um, I need to get this document. Um, So a man named Jensen wrote uh, New Testament and Old Testament surveys that are very helpful. I need to get that uh, chart. I, I haven't even looked at that chart that Dalt has listed there. But when we attempt to learn church doctrine from the Gospel of Matthew, it really causes a lot of doctrinal problems. And so, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, they love the Gospel of Matthew. Whenever you hear a politician quoting the Bible, it's something from Matthew, maybe from the Sermon on the Mount. Rarely do you hear a politician say anything that the Apostle Paul wrote, because that'd be way too offensive. And the ideas that they get from the Sermon on the Mount fits into their social construct as opposed to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the necessity of believing that. All right. Um, Now, letter E. Consider these passages which indicate faith and practice in an Old Testament context. So let's look at Matthew 1.1. The purpose of this study on the kingdom of heaven for the and as we are focusing on the gospel of Matthew is to demonstrate the Jewish nature of the book of Matthew. All right, so Matthew 1.1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of God, I'm sorry, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Look at the Jewish espousals. So uh, chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph. So remember, espousal is like engagement, but it was a Jewish ceremony. So this is a Jewish concept, verse 19. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. Now this would not be a divorce because they weren't married yet. But he was going to put her away from the espousal. Look at verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David. So he's from the lineage of David. Again, very Jewish reference. All right, number four, verse verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save, what does it say? His people from their sins. Now, Christmas time, we love that passage, and... It is a blessing that he came to save us. That's not what this verse is talking about. And I'm, I don't know if I have been real careful in my communication of that because we can fall into habits of what we have heard. And, but this is clearly talking about the Jewish people. Now, he, he came for everybody. But who did he come to first? The Jews, his own. He came into his own. Look at chapter 2 and verse 2. Why don't we look at verse 1, chapter 2 and verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? King of the Jews. Then look at chapter 3, verse 1. And, of course, the whole chapter is about the, the preaching of John the Baptist. 
In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he goes on and talks about the coming of the Messiah. Verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that come after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. We're going to cover that verse quite a bit more when we're back in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, because obviously this verse is cited, right, in, in Acts chapter 1. And her, this, this passage is cited, but remember, he came and he, he began preaching to his disciples. His disciples received the baptism of John. When Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit, the, the apostles were then baptized by the Holy Spirit. But that was Jesus Christ who did that. Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit to accomplish that, and he will baptize the world in fire. So this is a prophecy of what's coming. Don't pray for the baptism of fire. You know, some of our Pentecostal charismatic friends, they, they, they want the baptism of fire. They don't know what they're asking for, right? It's like me. I told you the story about when I was a kid, I had these boots, and I thought they were steel toe boots. And so I had a friend throw a big rock at my foot. I didn't know what I was asking for, all right? That's like these people asking for fire. It's, it's, it's not a good thing. All right, uh, how about the preaching in the synagogues? Look at chapter 4 and verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. What was he doing? He was going to the synagogues. The synagogue is a Jewish assembly for people that couldn't make it regularly to the temple. So if you had a certain number of Jews in a community, you could establish a synagogue. And that's where they would gather together on the Sabbath to hear the reading of the scriptures. And remember, Jesus Christ came and revealed himself as the one that Isaiah was speaking of. But this Jewish assembly, it was, or this synagogue assembly, was clearly Jewish, and that's the context. When it's saying here also, verse 23 again, that um, at preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease, he is establishing that he's the Messiah. That's what he was doing for the Jews. That's, that's the point of that passage. All right? Uh, the law is still clearly in effect. Look at chapter 5 and verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verse 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle shall, be, <clears throat> shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So it wasn't fulfilled yet. The law wasn't fulfilled until Jesus Christ died on the cross. He had to fulfill the law. He had to obey the law. Now, there were portions of the law that Jesus violated. Remember, he was walking along and his, he had some men eat the food that was in the field, but you weren't supposed to pick crops. So why, did, why was Jesus willing to violate the law? Because it was for him. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's allowed to be there. He's allowed to take it. And some of that was a ceremonial law that had nothing to do with what God had said. It's things that the Pharisees had added on to the law. And so you have to, in order to understand those things, you need to be careful in those details. All right? Then 
The civil court-related practices were Jewish. So, verse 21, ye have heard that, still in chapter 5, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. So these are, this is civil court stuff from the Old Testament that's still being applied. Um, then look at chapter 8. This is the one that I often think of. So if you look at chapter 8 and verse 1, when he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See, thou tell no man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. We don't do any of that anymore. That has nothing to do with New Testament church doctrine. That's what Jesus told this man to do. And there are other places where that same thing happened. So we could continue all through Matthew. It's Jewish, 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 Jewish. Okay, number five. <clears throat> the key to understanding Matthew is the term kingdom of heaven. It is used 32 times in the book of Matthew and only in the book of Matthew. It occurs nowhere else in Scripture. Letter A, the standard teaching from commentators is that the phrases kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same and they are used synonymously. This, of course, is wrong, first of all, because God and heaven are not the same words. All right. Now, the rest of this we have already gone through in our other studies. So let's drop down to the bottom of page four, number seven down there. In reference to Matthew 3, 2, so let's look at Matthew 3, 2. Remember, this is where repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But let's look at that to make sure. This is John's message. And saying, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter Ruckman said, if John's kingdom of heaven is not located exactly, immediately in its proper place, then the remainder of Matthew is unintelligible. And this is why Matthew has caused so much doctrinal trouble. If you are looking, if, if there's a doctrinal disagreement among either charismatics, Roman Catholics, Church of Christ, you know, people who teach that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. If, if, if there is an issue of doctrine, it's going to be found in Matthew, Acts, Hebrews, and James. Almost never is there a controversy in the Pauline epistles or in the other gospels. It almost all comes from the Gospel of Matthew. <clears throat> and almost never, the second place would be the other Gospels, almost never from the Pauline epistles. There's really not much controversy from the Pauline epistles. You have to teach something from somewhere else in order to have those controversies. All right, next page. The Old Testament teaching of a glorious, eternal, earthly kingdom is the most prominent theme in the Bible. <clears throat> we sang the song this morning, His kingdom comes, and, and His kingdom will have no end. That is the teaching. Everything that exists now is going to have an end. Everything. It's all going to burn. The elements shall melt with a fervent heat. 
When Jesus Christ sits on his throne in Revelation 20, he reveals his face, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. That does not continue forever. Jesus Christ's kingdom endures forever. That kingdom has not yet been established. It won't happen until his feet set on the Mount of Olives and he establishes his kingdom again. Okay? That's, uh, let's look at some of these passages. Look at Psalm 10. I um, These kinds of statements that I'm making, <clears throat> whenever I make a statement like this, I don't understand how people miss this when I, when I make those statements. The idea that people can miss that Jesus is going to establish a kingdom, the idea that those passages have all been fulfilled that's what Calvinists teach, that all of those kingdom promises have already been fulfilled. Not all Calvinists, but any of them who are preterists, who believe in, in either amillennialism or postmillennialism, they all believe that. So when I make a statement, I don't understand how you can have that position that almost sounds condescending or, you know what I mean? Like we know something they don't. We, we just believe the words. That, that's what it comes down to. So look at, let's look at Psalm 10 and look at verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The heathen are perished out of his land. Well, has that happened? How many of you know some heathen? I see a few on the front row down here. Right? We, we know there's heathen. All right. Let, look at um, Psalm 29 and verse 10. It's fun. You know, we preachers, we fall into habits of using some of the same passages to teach things. I've not used that one before. That, that's a new one for me from this study. That's, that's really fun to see that. Um, look at uh, Psalm 29 and verse 10. The Lord sitteth upon the flood, yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. Well, like that Douglas Wilson that I talk about, he believes that Jesus is that right now, that he is sitting on the throne of his kingdom right now. That's what he believes. How could you believe that? I, 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 I can't, all right? Look at uh, Psalm 145 and verse 13. If you're watching this online and you just heard me reference Doug Wilson, I like him. He's got a lot of really helpful stuff. He's absolutely whacked out on this one. I hope that was clear. Psalm 145 and verse 13. I'll tell you, if you all ever want to watch something amazing, he did a, a debate over gay marriage. He calls it gay mirage. And then at a, at a public college campus, and then for two hours, he took questions from the, from the audience, a very hostile audience. He just stood there and took their questions. 
it's the best thing on that subject I've ever seen. It was amazing. And it doesn't that frustrate you? That he could be so good on that and miss the clear teaching of Scripture on this over here. I, I wish he was as perfect as me. All right, so Psalm 145, look at verse 13. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. Well, it is an everlasting kingdom. It just hasn't started yet. All right? So that's enough for that. Drop down to number one. Compare the Old Testament quotation of Isaiah 61. So we've done this before, but let's do it again because it's a really appropriate place to do it. Look at Isaiah 61. And get Luke chapter 4. I just referenced this event. Um, When you get those two passages in your hand, look up here. I want to demonstrate the importance of this subject. So I think it was 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago aired an interview they did with Doug Wilson. And they went out to, he, believe it or not, his town is Moscow, Idaho. And it's a very liberal community. Their church is growing. They have, I don't know, a couple thousand people that go to their church. And it's not a large community, but it's a college community. And he has become known for Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. And you know, with everything that's been going on, with all the MAGA stuff and all of that, any kind of nationalism, they want to equate with Nazi, right? Because they can't say what Nazi actually stands for, which was democratic socialist. That's young people, that's what it is. That's what Nazi is, is democratic socialist. So if someone says they're a democratic socialist, you are allowed to call them a Nazi, Check with your parents first. It's okay with Pastor. You might get in trouble at school, but tell them to call me. Um, So, of course, Brent, I know you teach that to to your students. Are they shocked when you show them that? They probably just don't care, do they? Yeah. So anyway, they interviewed... Doug Wilson, and here's why this becomes really important. That kind of of theology, where we're going to take over the government, we're going to take over the country, that eventually we'll be in charge, and we'll rule righteously, and we will judge the citizens based on the Ten Commandments, You understand how that can be used against us. That is not what we believe, and that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus will rule that way. We're not allowed to rule that way. So this distinction that we're talking about in this session tonight, 
was on the news three weeks ago. It was on 60 Minutes three weeks ago to be used against us. Really important, all right? So let's compare. Look at Isaiah 61, and let's look at verses 1 through 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of the vengeance of our God. Now, we've pointed it out before, but do you notice the comma after the acceptable year of the Lord? Remember that. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes. Beauty for ashes? Why is he going to give them beauty for ashes? Because the world has just been on fire in the tribulation period. Isn't that amazing? How many of you have seen that phrase, beauty for ashes? No one ever teaches what it's actually talking about. All right, let's keep going. Remember, he's going to baptize them with fire, right? So to to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. He is going to plant Israel back in the land. That's what this is talking about, okay? So let's look at what Jesus read in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered, I have to say it, the word of God reading the word of God. Man, that, you know, that's what we get to hear in the kingdom. That's going to be cool. So, uh, verse 17, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And listen to what he said. He gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. That portion of the scripture was fulfilled. The other is yet to be fulfilled. Aren't you glad he stopped there? Because all of that stopping of the evil that we talked about this morning, it would have happened right here. But we get to live because of that. Now, let's look at our handout. Compare the Old Testament quotation of Isaiah 61, 1 through 3, with the actual quote in Luke 4, 16 through 18. The Luke quotation stops short because the remaining material is kingdom-related, the kingdom having not been established yet. Matthew gives the details of Israel's rejection of the kingdom, which explains why the kingdom is postponed and left out of the Luke quotation. I want to, um, man, we've got 30 minutes already. All right, let me, let me just explain something to you that's real interesting. I mentioned this either on a Wednesday night or in the Sunday school hour. I was preaching in New York in September, and I was teaching on the preservation of Scripture. I had my, my 
Bible exhibit. And this man came up to me and he said, so you believe that God has preserved every word of the Bible? And God's people said, and he said it in kind of an incredulous way. And that means he didn't believe me. And I said, so you don't believe that? He said, well, no. I said, why not? And he said, he showed, he looked at this passage. And did you notice that the wording in the Luke passage is a little different than the wording in the Isaiah passage? Did y'all notice that? And he said, well, then God didn't preserve it word perfect. This was his problem. And so I asked him this question. Is the Isaiah passage what Isaiah wrote? He didn't really, yeah. Is the Luke passage what Jesus said? Yeah. Then you're asking the wrong question. Why are they different? That's one question. But do we have the words of Isaiah and do we have the words of Luke? That's the preservation of scripture. Are y'all with me on this? This is the stuff that we run into all the time. So this is the logical fallacy of equivocation. You're arguing on, on, on one term, and then you change to a different definition of that term as if it's a contradiction. It's not. God preserved Isaiah. God preserved Luke. It's different in, in Luke than it was in Isaiah. He said, listen to what he said. He said, Luke was reading, a, or Jesus was reading a Greek translation. And that Greek translation was different than Isaiah. I said, how do you know that? Well, he had read, somebody said that Jesus was reading a Greek translation. I said, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus need a Bible? How many of you think maybe Jesus knew what the Bible said? I said, there's two problems with your, with your argument. Number one, Jesus is allowed to make any change to a verse that he wants to. It's his. Amen? Secondly, the, he was talking about the Septuagint. The Septuagint is fake. It, it, it doesn't exist. There is no Greek Septuagint. Scholars say that there were a group of 70 scholars who translated the Hebrew into Greek, the Hebrew Old Testament, into the Greek language in 70 days. 70 scholars did it in 70 days. That's the legend. And that this was done about 200 B.C. That's the legend. How much evidence do you think there is of that? None. None. There is no pre-200 A.D. copies. There are no pre-200 A.D. copies of this mythological Septuagint. It doesn't exist. It does not exist. So this guy had wrong information on so many different levels and bad argumentation. How many of you think that when I gave him that information, he changed his mind? See, because here's the problem. Facts weren't the issue. It was a lack of faith in God's ability to preserve his word. That, that's what it comes down to. 
Why are the words in Luke different than the words in Isaiah? Well, because the Luke is written in Greek, the Greek language. So we have an English translation of the Greek in the New Testament, and we have a Hebrew or an English translation of the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Well, what if those words are a little different? That's up to God. I don't know. There's no, ev- there's no explanation for it. And yet, is Luke the Word of God? Is Isaiah the Word of God? All right. Let's pray. Everybody stand. How many of you know that God never promised to give us an answer to every one of our questions? Right? Like, why are holes empty? That's a good question. All right. Lord, we love you. You're so good to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this teaching where we're learning about your kingdom.